We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is the True Faith Podcast with me, Simon Campbell, with two top draw guests this evening in Chris Wolf of The Athletic and Michael Martin of True Faith, of course, uh, back in 1999, Mick. Am I right? Is that when we started? Yeah, that's right. And here we brutal, are. Finally, brutal it. <laughs> finally looking forward to some uh, to, to a season of football eh, in, uh, in 2022. Uh we're going to talk about tonight, generally have a bit of a recap on, on the owners and their performance so far. That is PIF, the Rubens and, and Amanda Stavlian and how we think that's gone overall, looking at some of the kind of decision making and things that's happened along the way and then kind of reflect on where we thought we'd be this time in uh, October last year. So we'll just jump straight into it. Quick fire question to start us off, lads. How have they done? Mick, I'll come to you first. How, how do you think they've done since the 6th of October 2021? A lot of uh, very, very uh, good things. So a lot of positives, I think. Um, I mean, firstly, um, they've, when you look back, kind of what they've, what they've done, there's been some very deft PR, hasn't there? Um, you know, and I think they've dealt with some bumps in the road as well. So deft PR, the Shira statue, Shira's sacking Bruce, appointing how the bump in the road, getting knocked back off uh, Unai Emery, etc., um, finding the right money in January for uh, you know for some really important signings, uh, keeping the faith and not panicking with how at any time. I never got the feeling that there was panic there. So yeah, a lot of very good things, and I think they've significantly this this appointment today uh, or this week rather uh, in Dan Ashworth's pivotal, um, and obviously we're talking today on the back of them making the first signing. So yeah, a lot of a lot of positives, a lot of other stuff that I think uh, needs explaining. But um, I'll not rub it on too much at this point. Thanks, Mick. Uh, we'll definitely come back to some of this stuff because there is a lot to talk about, in spite of the fact it's only been eight, not even eight months yet. Um, Chris, same question as as an overall assessment. How do you think the new ownership has has fared in the first first eight months? Well, I mean, in my industry, we usually give out player ratings. So if I was to give out a sort of owner ratings for how they've done so far, I think I'd probably go a comfortable eight, probably pushing in some areas towards a nine. I agree with Mick. I think there's a, there's a few areas which maybe need explaining or whether they could prove on. But in terms of the situation they inherited, both on and off the pitch, and to get Newcastle to the position they are now less than eight months on, 
they've had luck along the way, which is what you need. But I also think they have made some 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 good decisions. I think the decision not to panic at, at certain points and not to rush decisions that they wanted to take for the long term have ended up serving them well. The ends have justified the means, mm. and they they got a basically a 100% hit rate in terms of what the the January signings offered. And so Howe deserves a lot of credit for that, but so did the recruitment team and the owners for backing him. And that's very rare you'd get it get it sorted out that well. And obviously Howe himself has turned out very well, albeit as we know about Unai Emery. So yeah, I'd say that they've performed uh, certainly above expectations. And if you're comparing it to, to, to the previous owner and what was there before, then I'd say immeasurably better, certainly than the, the final 12 and a half years of his time as owner. So... Uh, yeah. Yeah. There isn't a number that can uh, to make that comparison <laughs> to the previous owner. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with both those assessments. It has been, they've performed a miracle, haven't they? They have performed a miracle from where we were at the point they took over. And by the time they kind of got things going, because we had another couple of games with Graham Jones in charge where we just lost even more time in the, in the battle against relegation. But yeah, I think you're right. There's been a bit of luck or what I would call happy accidents. Because you look back and think the, the Unai Emery situation was, it was embarrassing. And we'll talk a bit more about that in detail. But um, we ended up with Eddie Howe almost as a second choice or what felt like a second choice at the time. But absolutely nobody, nobody would swap them now. I, I, can't, I, I don't know anyone who would who would make that swap. Um, you know, the the time it took to, to make some signings and the, lack, the fact that they didn't rush might have felt a bit um, like things weren't going so well. But maybe you're right, Chris. Maybe it was all just about patience and the right decisions being made. The fact we didn't get Ashworth in January and just had to rely on Eddie Howe. Again, I would, I would call that a happy accident because they went to the manager and said, right, what do we need? And he told them and they sorted it and it's it's done the job. So everything's kind of fallen into place. You could call that luck or you could call that they've they've done the job well in terms of they didn't panic and just make really, really snappy decisions when they, when they didn't need to. Um, and I'll be honest, back in October, when the, t- the takeover happened, um, we had nine days before the, the Tottenham game and I thought they would sack Steve Bruce. I thought they had to sack Steve Bruce. I thought he was toxic and it would just spoil what could have been a momentous day. Um, so I would quite like to talk about that first, the, the managerial change situation because I still feel like maybe he could have gone earlier, but the way it's played out hasn't turned out too badly in the end. I don't know. I'll come to you first, Chris. In terms of that, um, the way that all played out, the the fact that Steve Bruce remained in charge for the for the Spurs game and basically... Up until the point where yeah, where Wilson scored, it looked like the right decision. And then it didn't take long for that to look like the wrong decision. And then on this momentous first home game with a new ownership, it still got a bit nasty in the ground towards Steve Bruce. Maybe they could have avoided that. But um, what were your thoughts on, on how that played out up to the point where we have this kind of two-horse race for the manager's job? Well, I have to be honest, I was surprised when Steve Bruce was was still there for, for the Spurs game. And that was both just in terms of the context of, of, of how I saw it. And I thought it was it was untenable in being there. But also all of the noises that were coming out were that really they knew that Bruce shouldn't, well, really didn't have much longer and would have to go. But the reality was certainly from the the PIF side was that the the but the, the the question they came back with was what what is next and there was no actual answer at that stage they didn't have it, it all happened so quickly that they didn't actually have anyone in place we all know that previously Rafa Benitez was someone they liked a lot at that by that stage yeah. he was at Everton there were very tentative sort of calls to him but he wasn't going to break that contract and so they didn't know which direction it was going to go in next and so it was a fair question to come back at but it just felt like it needed something fresh. 
Graham Jones, those three matches, it didn't really change anything. He will probably argue, well, I, I nicked a couple of points, which may have proved important in the end. But I think that, that really they did feel like like wasted matches to an extent. They, they, they nicked a point at Crystal Palace when they were battered and then got turned over by Chelsea quite comfortably hmm. at home. Then going into the actual situation, they went through a long managerial process. There was around 20 people they looked at, uh, got it down to, to the final few who they spoke to. There was obviously a lot of noise people around there. Fonseca were trying to get his name out there when really he was ruled out quite early in terms of being someone who they were going to look at. And it came down Mm. to to, to Howe and Emery. And they did go for Emery. And in the end, it looked like a balls up. And and I suppose it was in many ways. But what I would say in their defences, and this is is a very sort of inside my industry journalistic sort of thing, is it comes out afterwards that some people say, oh, well, they leaked that. That came out... From my point of view, from my understanding, is it didn't actually come out from the owners. They weren't the ones who leaked it. I think the mistake that they made was not was maybe when it actually did come out, not sort of rolling back and just 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 keeping stone when journalists went to them with it. I think that they confirmed a little bit too much at that stage. They weren't the ones who leaked it initially. That came out from other areas, but mm. the way that it was handled, the way that it sort of on a Champions League night to get to the level that it did with the speculation and then obviously Emery pulling back. That was an early lesson for them. We can argue and we will never know how it would have worked out if Unai Emery had had come in. Obviously, Eddie Howe, who was the choice of some of the members of the board anyway, um, certainly some elements of it that did go that did go for, for Emery to begin with but brought in Howe so that was an early lesson for them but in terms of the way it worked out afterwards and the fact that Howe thankfully uh, wasn't put off by that and eventually came in and, and did very very well he'd done his due diligence on the club they'd done his due dil- their due diligence on him and thought that he could make an impact took him a little bit of time but obviously in the end it worked out uh, very much for the best yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually, because I, I was still under the impression and had assumed the whole time that the club had been a bit too loose with their with their kind of information about the situation and that they had leaked the, the Emery and perhaps they just hadn't realised how quickly just the slightest slip was going to travel because Newcastle was the only thing in the news for about two months up to Christmas as all anyone was talking about. But it's interesting that, yeah, they, they, they weren't necessarily responsible for that, but perhaps didn't nip it in the bud in the way that yeah. they should have done. Um and yet, as I said before, happy accident. We end up with Eddie Howe, even if he wasn't necessarily the unanimous decision that they, they wanted to go with. Um, and he'd obviously impressed them enough to be considered in the same ballpark as a Champions League, a current Champions League manager at the time. So, um, yeah, it was a very interesting saga. Mick, do you have any uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Chris is closer to, the, obviously, who said what, when they said it, etc., than any than any of us two. But... Um, I think for me, it seemed really important at the time to get Bruce out of the building and we were all desperate for him to to, to go uh, because he had become that toxic kind of presence mm. uh, that you were speaking about, not just the football, just his whole demeanour and attitude towards uh, the support as the club and, and obviously to Chris and his colleagues um, as well. It just became a very bad situation. It seemed really, really important at the time but I think now, sitting here in the kind of early to mid-June, it doesn't seem important anymore. Uh, obviously, there was the big event of the first game after the takeover was uh, completed and we were all you know, hugely excited about that. And, and I think Bruce's presence in the dugout probably did take a, away a lot from that. But at, at the same time, I think the point is well made by, uh, by the Public Investment Fund um, who said, what happens next? There wasn't an answer to that question, so the 
they kind of had to stick with him. What was the alternative? Give it to Jones. Well, Jones proved that he couldn't really deliver that many results as a manager himself. Got some important points, he would argue, in him, and I think I would probably agree with that. Uh, but I think the big picture is, it. looking back on it, it didn't really count for that much now. Yeah, I, I was interested, actually, Chris. Like, Were they ever considering just seeing how Graham Jones did, or was it just a case of they were happy to let him take a couple of games while they got the decision right? Was that all it was? There was never really any... It didn't feel like there was any chance of him actually getting the job on a more interim basis. I'm not entirely sure on that. Actually, there was it was at least mm. there was so many ideas that were floated around. So whether it was ever in terms of that this is this is going to be what we're going to do going forward, but uh, there there was a stage where when they put Jones in charge, it was let's see how this goes. We will go through the managerial interviewing process, and hopefully that'll bring a permanent solution. But if the permanent solution we can get isn't attainable, if Jones does well, there's a chance he could remain. That was floated at the very start. So yeah, there were there were, there were so many different things. And, it, and to be to begin with, that chaotic is it too far to say chaotic? I'd say it's probably a little bit harsh, but certainly there was a there was a lot of people who hadn't been involved in running a football club before suddenly in these positions. And you had three different, uh, not factions, but three different sections of the consortium. Obviously, everything has to go through them. You have a majority, uh, share, significant majority shareholder mm-hmm. and PAF to so ultimately make the decision. So, so many different ideas were floated. Different things were said. I don't think it ever got close that he was going to st- stay for the season, but it was at least discussed that it could have been a possibility. It's a, matter, it's a matter to think how many ways this could have gone then. It, it feels even more miraculous that the, the path we went on was the right one and, and we ended up where we where we did come come May. Um, and yet, there we were. Eddie Howe comes in and he gets some pretty bad luck to start with in terms of the games that were winnable. He was, wasn't in the dugout for Brentford because of COVID. Norwich, Kieran Clark basically cost us that one. And then he has, like you say, Chris, he has a bit of time to try and get the team going with some really difficult fixtures that were never really winnable, given the lack of confidence, the lack of fitness. Um, we'll not dwell on the, the lack of training that received under the previous manager, but um, yeah, there was a lot of problems to solve and he was slowly but surely making headways, but not a lot. And we'd only won one game as we got to January. Um, but then, as you've said at the, st- at the start of the show, Chris, the transfer window probably couldn't, go- couldn't have gone much better. And even at the time, it didn't feel like that was the case. I think people were very nervous because of how much work was needed, how much of a situation we're in. We start the transfer window with with kind of tongue-in-cheek talk of Mbappe, but then there was some what seemed like serious interest in the likes of Diego Carlos and Sven Botman because we thought we needed defenders and and the likes of um, Trippier was always on the cards and we kind of knew that from the start. But beyond that, it was all a bit, um, a bit pie in the sky. It felt it at the time. And then as, as the month progressed, I didn't feel like it was getting... I, I felt like we were getting knocked back on on um, our first choices and then we had to go for second choices. Was that kind of how it did play out? Or were we being dramatic? Um, was it just a case of negotiating is difficult in January and that that surprised them? I don't know. I, I feel like January was a bit chaotic at the time, but it, it all all ended up the way it should have done. Oh, January was, an, it was entirely chaotic. It was always going to be because Newcastle were in a, a unique position in terms of where they were, what they needed to do, and what, in theory, they could become. And everyone knew that. And suddenly, as you say, they were this world story and they're being linked to everyone. Agents and clubs are using them left, right and centre for that. And it started very well getting Q and Trippier done. They then realised the the desperate need they had for, for a striker because Callum Wilson's injury. So they went... 
and they exercised the clause to 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 get Chris Wood for 25 million and that was both exactly what they needed and Chris Wood served his purpose but if you speak to to some other people around that time and and certainly other clubs the issue that it raised for Newcastle was they were trying to get prices knocked down and as soon as they went and paid 25 million pounds for Chris Wood other mm. clubs were like hang on a second you're say you're you're pleading not poverty but you do not quite have the money that you you said you had suddenly you've got 25 million pounds to pay for a striker who we know you see as your second choice striker and you're in desperate need and so that affected some of the negotiations they had that made it even more complicated i'm not saying that that would have happened anyway but the likes of, of, of botman and carlos that that did complicate matters further and there was the middle part of the window after but between the the point that they signed wood and the last three signings coming in it's about two and a half weeks three three weeks at that period they didn't actually sign anyone for that but there was a bit of, of frustration behind the scenes at newcastle there was a bit of fear that they weren't going to get everything done they need to do and then they went to to, to Jeddah for the for the for the training camp, they had a transfer meeting there, and it was yes, we we will back you. And what exactly is it that we need to get before the end of the window? And then they went and signed three of the four players they still wanted. They still didn't get the sort of a attacking player they wanted in in Lingard or Agatiki. In either of those deals, they could quite get completed in time. But they did sign Matt Target, they signed Dan Byrne, and they signed Bruno Gimmerich. And and the, the the impact that those three made, albeit Bruno Gimmerich came along a little bit lot further into the season, was absolutely phenomenal and helped transform them. And all five of the January signings made a significant impact and, and, and undoubtedly improved the team. I'm certainly not a one of those uh, people who subscribe to the idea that Newcastle only survived because of the January window. The January window helped, and it helped boost everyone and improve everyone. But the improvement throughout the squad, throughout the team, the Joe Linton being the prime example of that, was already there. But the way they used the January window as well, the way they, they did spend £93 million, but they spent £93 million well, and that is not an easy thing to necessarily do. They're signed to exactly what they needed, and that's what served them through to the rest of the season. 100%. Now, I think that the, the mention of the trip to Jeddah was quite an interesting one. I kind of forgot that three of the five signings came after that trip because my, my question was going to be how... How much were the results at home to Watford and maybe less so Cambridge because it was just a cup game, but those two results at the start of January, even with Trippier in the squad, I think Wood played against Watford as well, didn't he? Yeah. Um, that was his debut. And we still couldn't couldn't buy a win. How much did that impact maybe bringing forward some of the spending that might have been earmarked for the summer? Is there any truth in that? Or are they always planning to bring in what they could in January because they knew that, that it was needed? It's difficult to know exact timelines as to when they shift and how much we're going to spend. Certainly when they first came in on October the 6th, at that point, Newcastle were in a very difficult position, but they weren't really cut adrift and they weren't as far into the season. At that point, the idea was probably 40 or 50 million they would spend. They would spring in a two or three signings. But the, because the situation worsened, because they were in a, in a far more perilous position come January, and because of those those results, the Cambridge and, and Watford result, that did, that did bring forward some of the some of the spending mm. which was earmarked for later on and they did end up uh, putting more money into the club than, than they certainly intended to Chris Wood was brought forward a because they learned of, of the clothes they knew could do it quickly but b after they saw the Cambridge game and the amount of chances that they'd missed and uh, uh, they desperately needed a striker they realized there, there was a need for a striker here he did clear Eddie Howard decided Dwight Gale was not the answer and was not going to be the answer for the rest of the season Newcastle needed a focal point up front. And so they brought Wood in. The final three actually came on the back of, of the win to Leeds. And the win to Leeds, I think, helped Newcastle in that it 
how sh- how had shown away for he'd shown that that's the second win of the season we've won away from home it, there's a little bit of momentum here. I think it both helped convince some of the signings who they brought in, particularly Bruno Gimmerich. I think without the the Leeds win, it would have been even, it would be more difficult to bring him in. But I also think that it showed to the board, look, if you spend money, we are on the right track here. It's taken us time, mm. but and, and I think that they bought that argument. And so, both the negative results and the positive results, strangely in a perverse sort of way, I think did help to to, to get the business that he wanted. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. I just I just wondered how. How critical losing um, or just continuing not to win games might have been, but you're right. I think the the Leeds win was a catalyst for so many things. It, it also it changed the whole mood for that trip too to to Saudi Arabia because if they'd gone off the back of another defeat or even just a draw, it would have been a, a very different um, different experience, I'm sure. Um, I think I think sorry, just to, I think we as the media probably would have covered the trip differently as well. If I mean that as a collector, I don't mean necessarily just me personally, but I think yeah, if Newcastle yeah. had lost and gone to to Jeddah with another defeat, I think it would have been covered more negatively in a national sense. But because the, because they'd won and gone there and weren't quite the, the sort of stories it was, it didn't get picked up as much. Because I'll, I'll admit, when I first heard they were going they were going to Jeddah, and then it was the, behind the scenes, there was sort of um and an R, and are we going to do this? Uh, certain elements of the consortium were saying, no, I don't think it's a good idea, we won't do it. Others were saying, no, it's going it's to happen, we are going there. Even they were internally debating it. And I thought it was a bad PR move at that time. I didn't think, I thought it was an unnecessary distraction for the manager and the players at a time where he wanted to take them away, but I thought there were better destinations I could go to. In the end, I think the Leeds win helped contribute to that. And that because there was a positivity around what they were trying to do and they were trying to make progress in the, in the transfer market, that meant that the negativity didn't take hold in the way that I, I was certainly fearful it made for them. Yeah, no, that that, that makes absolute sense. Um, I guess it brings me on to the other the other key point I wanted to kind of discuss about their overall um, time here so far is that kind of thing around messaging, around communication, around what they say. And you go back to day one, Amanda Stavely, Amanda Stavely sat and gave an interview and talked about Champions League within five years and winning trophies. And, you know, she set out a stall right there and then. Uh, and, you know, there's been various, quite a lot of communication. We're not used to this, are we? We're not used to a football club that communicates puts out comms, tells us what's going on, tells us what they're kind of thinking and doing, um, albeit sometimes a bit too much. Now, I just wanted your thoughts on, on, on are they delivering on what they said? Because uh, they'll be t- telling you guys a lot more than what, what we're, we're seeing necessarily. How far apart is kind of what they said to begin with? Where are we now? And, and what is it a case of it's harder than they were expecting? Or is there anything like they're just kind of saying what people want to hear. Like, what, what, where, where are we on that? Because there's so much communication coming out of the club and so much media around it that it is quite hard for us as supporters to interpret and kind of understand where we're at. I mean, you will always look back at the, at the first day and what was said. And, and it isn't that what Steve said was taken out of context because they backed it up and, they, and they've said it since. But she was asked the question. I wasn't actually there, but if, if you actually look back at the transcript, she was asked the question of, do you want to win the Premier League within five to ten years? She didn't offer that up as her own sort of statement. And I think that that is in itself important. But also the messaging on that first day, I think subsequently having had conversations with them, that all of the elements of the consortium would argue We'd done all our due diligence. We'd looked at the club, but they hadn't actually been able to speak to anyone at the club. And you don't know everything about the club until you're inside of it. And I'd say Eddie Howe would probably say the same about him taking over the squad. He'd he'd identified elements of why he thought he could improve them. But the problems or the, the, the areas you need to improve are only evident once you're actually within it. And so 
undoubtedly they have discovered things they didn't realize and it has become trickier in many senses but really the message since they've taken over is first season the we need to survive that was that was the goal that was the, the goal between october and certainly from december onwards until the end of the season it was if we finish 17th here then that that's that's the benchmark for us to then, then build from that point survival was everything that that's part of the reason why they invested in january because really they they, they didn't see relegation as, as being acceptable they had a plan for if, if, if there's going to be relegation but then you would set them back 18 months two years at least and they would have to spend a heck of a lot of money building a squad to win the championship then mm. basically rip that up to try and get higher up into the Premier League. They wanted to avoid that stage. And so it's all been about stay in the Premier League while also thinking longer term. So the likes of, of Dan Ashworth, that they, they interviewed a lot of other candidates for that role. That a lot of other candidates tried to put themselves forward for that role. They could have they could have employed a sporting director far sooner than they did and at a far less cost than they've ended up paying to Brighton if they'd wanted to. But that's that decided that Dan Ashworth was the man who was going to uh, impart the vision they have for the club and, and they're waited for them. And uh, the, the same with the managerial situation, that they, they could have panicked immediately, brought, they could have done the populist thing and sacked Steve Bruce on day one and then just brought in anyone. Uh, they didn't do that, even when I, even when the likes of me were saying they need, they need a manager here in that month-long period it took them to do it. They didn't do that, they stuck to them. And, and all of the messaging all along has been, this is a long-term project and we want to build and we want to become one of the biggest clubs in Europe, if, if not the world, and we want to be challenging for things, but we want to do it organically and we want to set the building blocks in place. We're not just going to try and skip through the levels. We need we need all of that in place. So I think that the messaging in that sense has been largely consistent. The one area I'd say that, it, that I'm still a little bit baffled by and still can't get consistent messaging on is the CEO situation. There's been... The, the murmurings for a long while has been that the, the, the CEO it's it's going to be soon it's going to be soon it's going to it's going to happen soon and and that is another element of the club again you, they may come out and argue afterwards we've been waiting for the right person but at, at this stage they need they need that figure they've got they've now got the sporting side of the of the of the uh, of the club sorted in terms of they have the, the figurehead in place there but they need someone on the other side to sort out the business business element which then will affect the sporting side because they're the ones who's going to sort who are really going to streamline the commercial elements bring in all those big deals sort all that and that th- hasn't quite happened on that in that sense it hasn't quite delivered exactly what they said was going to come yet he hasn't they haven't arrived yet as i say that they may they may come in the not too distant future and then that vision may begin to grow. But that's the one area that does concern me a little bit is that, that I do think there needs someone in place. Now we're into the summer. It's an important summer for Newcastle. And I think if they had the CEO there, that would make a significant difference. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's absolutely fair. Um, and to be fair, I, I think most of what has been said points to me that this is a football club trying to do the right thing and trying to deliver on what they've said, which, uh, which is encouraging. Um, We'll uh, have a quick break and then we'll come back for part two and have a look at uh, this ownership compared to perhaps some of the the ones in the not too distant or perhaps distant future with, uh, <laughs> with, with, with Mick. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And we're back. Michael Martin, long-suffering Newcastle United fan compared to the youngsters that are myself and Chris. Um, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the current ownership, You've got a fair few in, in uh, the last 30 to 40 to 50 years supporting Newcastle United. C- correct me where, where I should stop there, Mick. Um, Just 50. Just 50. <laughs> how, how has the last eight months been compared to the, the previous 50 years in terms of Newcastle ownership? Is this, is this the best it's been? Is it too early to say? Um, has there been worse times than before Mike Ashley that Chris and I probably don't aren't aware of? And is this not as big a deal as it, as it should be. Um, what, what's, what's it been like for, for you, this kind of reliving of a, of a, of a new ownership? So, so I think if you're a kind of a, uh, a student of the history of the, of the football club, you might say that the club's been at lower points than it's been under Mike Ashley. So even I'm not old enough to, to go to the pre-World War II era, but the 30s were pretty bleak in some ways they got relegated though they did win the FA Cup in the 30s of course um, but the um, you know they were relegated and they were down for a long time and they didn't get promoted until after the war so that must have been a pretty shit time um, in May era the late 70s early 80s kind of after they got relegated that was that was uh, a tough time uh, historically though it didn't feel like it at the time because I was a daft young lad but I would say the 14 years of Ashley is the bleakest the club's ever had because it had the soul ripped out of it. Mm. Um, so, you know, I often used to say to my pals, uh, you know, we've had some good times, some mad times following the club. We've been in Europe. We've been a good side. We had the Keegan years, the Bobby Robson years, uh, even Keegan years as a player, even the Joe Harvey years um, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and I experienced some of that. They were... Great times, great players, personality players, great matches, etc. And of course, the game's completely different to what it, what it is in the Premier League era. So, um, yeah, I think the 14 years of Ashley uh, were terrible and they were getting worse. Um, so I think Bruce was the worst of the worst, um, to be, to be <laughs> honest. Um, I think uh, he was he's a pretty abysmal manager and, it, and he's, I don't think he's much of a person, to be honest, either. Uh, hangs about for the money, then blames everyone but himself. Apart from the owners and directors that he's been working for, I think that's a that's a pattern in his managerial career as well, isn't it? So 
just going back in terms of takeovers, um, I've seen two happen uh, in my time. So the first one being uh, what might be the John Hall Shepherd takeover of the uh, of the early nineties, um, and then obviously the Ashley one. What I would say about the first one, the the Hall Shepherd uh, takeover was. Um, obviously, the game was very different. The club was very different then as well. There were a second division club that had been denied investment. The stadium was terrible, and but football was on the change. And there were a lot of clubs that were like Newcastle at that at that time. You know, the Liverpool's and Arsenal's and Man United's on on a, were nothing like what they are now to to the to that time as well. Um, but what I would say is John Hall did. Two made two very very clever appointments, which underpinned the success of the of the club, and that was uh, to go back to Chris's point about the chief executive position. John Hall went out and appointed Freddie Fletcher as chief executive. Now Fletcher had been part of the Rangers kind of revolution of the eighties, and kind of I think younger supporters failed to understand how massive that club was in the eighties. English clubs were banned from Europe, remember? Um, they couldn't uh, play in Europe. So top English players, England captains, etc., like Terry Butcher, the goalie, Chris Wood, Ray Wilkins, Graham Souness himself, all of those players had gone to Rangers and Rangers had the first all-seater stadium in the country, corporate hospitality, etc., etc. They were a phenomenon. And Freddie Fletcher was the man who was making them commercially this absolute behemoth of a, of a football club for Newcastle to go out and get him and bring him to, bring him to St James's Park was an, an absolute huge achievement and he revolutionised the commercial side of the club under, under John Hall and then of course his second appointment was Kevin Keegan and Keegan was kind of everything at that club at that time, he was the technical director, he was the head of scouting, he was the manager, the coach, everything. They certainly got their money's worth out of Kevin Keegan. And he was also um, a massive kind of rabble-rouser, if you like. You know, so he was saying, that, that you know, when we got promoted, he told Alex Ferguson, we're coming for your title. You know, very, very bold kind of statements, etc. And we all, we all got behind that because it was so exciting. So I kind of looked jump forward and I think there are various people doing that now um, in terms of messaging etc. Stavely herself has said this is what we're doing and albeit I, I, the words were probably planted in her and then quoted is, is what she said um, so there's all, there's all of that going on I think um, I mean I just don't think I look at Ashley etc. and I just think he, the decisions he made in his early part the people that he got around him were just so shabby and appalling. Um, it's uh, you know we don't need to go over that, over that ground. What I'm detecting from uh, the new ownership is professionalism. So they've got a lad in like Eddie Howe, who's couldn't be more different to Kevin Keegan. He's very quiet, professional, works hard. So did Kevin, um, but um, probably doesn't like the limelight as much. Uh, Keegan was great with PR and you know a real kind of um, pied piper of the of the club etc. And then you've got but what the club didn't have in the 
in the 90s when it was developing, it didn't have a long-term vision. So, the you know, Hall made some very bold statements like, we'll have a team of uh, 11 Geordies, we'll be like Barcelona of the North, etc. And I think they made some key mistakes in that period by getting involved in other sports like rugby, ice hockey and basketball, etc. And they took their eye off the ball with the main thing, which was football. And they didn't invest in an academy, training ground, etc. And they didn't really, at any point uh, in that time, and, and neither did Ashley. So now what I'm hearing is, is that they're upgrading the training facilities. They're looking to develop a new state-of-the-art facility, etc. They're building a, an infrastructure, and the most important people in any organise in any organisation is the people, and they look like they're, they're they're doing all of that. So all of that seems to me to be materially different. And I think if you're serious about running a football club, it cannot be all fur coat and no knickers because there wasn't much of a legacy behind what Hall and Shepherd created, as fun as it was at the time. And obviously, Ashley was just there to keep it ticking over until he could sell it. So this feels, it does feel like it's a long-term project. All of the messaging is is right in that way. Obviously, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, so a lot of the things have to happen. Um, I am concerned about them not appointing a chief executive. Um, if they are waiting to get the right person, then that's fine because they should always get it right rather than get it early, which I think they've done with Ashworth. Ashworth. So in my opinion, I think this could be, could be, again, things have to happen. Um, the best period in Newcastle United's history born on, you know, and the best period was way, way, years before we were born when our, you know, when my grandparents were children. So that was, you know, in the 1900s when they won the league three times and they won the FA Cup, etc. That was the best period, perhaps matched only come anywhere near in the 50s. So they've got to, they've got to kind of do what they say they're going to do. Um, I I am concerned about the corporate side. I am concerned that uh, Amanda Stavely and uh, Merdad Gudusi have got this 12-month management contract, which is we're into the final six months of that, four months, if you like. So I'm uncertain about what's happening with that. They need that chief executive appointed, and it's not just the chief exec, it's the whole corporate team team underneath that and then they also need to start doing things with things with supporters <clears throat> and i know they've had a meeting with the supporters trust but they still haven't got supporters liaison officers they still haven't got a, a kind of a formal governance structure whether or not they're waiting to see what happens with the tracy crouch recommendations and the independent regulator i can only speculate upon they need that sorted and there's lots of things that need to be looked at around tickets um around um who's going to get access to season tickets and how that 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 would be a nightmare to, for them to deal with there are certain sponsorship things i was quite surprised to see fun 88 on the front of the shirt still today i thought there might have been something happening with that then martin douglas uh, mark douglas has come out with the the story this afternoon that they've got another year and then there'll be another sponsor but I'm still not. I still don't understand who the sponsors in the stands are going to be. So there's a, and I might be being unfair by putting all of this out there, but it needs to be put out there that they've done wonderfully well. I mean, some really deft touches with the PR. I wasn't certain about them being on the pitch, but actually it didn't feel bad at that time. It didn't feel like they were interloping. What I got a sense was a sense of kind of camaraderie and relief and teamwork. And I think 
you know, speak about the family, etc. So that that seemed to be to to be right. But you know, I think the time probably to look at at this is right to have a look at it now. But maybe to look at keep looking at this and say, where did they start from? Where have they been? Where are they now? So I think they're a little. I think they're a little bit behind where they could be. So they could have appointed Ashworth earlier, maybe settled with Brighton earlier if that was possible. And I think they maybe should be making decisions on chief executives now. And I think they could be doing stuff around communications with supporters, more formalising of that, etc. But it's certainly not panic station. But if we're still in this position in six months' time, then I think we've got to ask some questions. I think most of that's very fair, Mick. I mean, yeah, in, in, it's it's impossible to compare anything that's gone under the last twenty years or or more, isn't it? I mean, um, you look at you look at mistakes made in the past. Uh, my my big one, growing up, because I was probably a little bit too young to really understand the whole Keegan era. I was I was maybe six, seven when I f- first started watching Newcastle in in the nineties and were brilliant. But I was a kid, I didn't know anything about the politics going on off the pitch. The first time I kind of got a whiff of things don't seem right was uh, when we finished third under Bobby Robson and then we signed Lee Bowie on a free transfer and you could tell there was just a bit of a bit of taste in the air on Newcastle United. It's like, well, what's going on there? And it's been the same pretty much. But the key, <laughs> the key difference for that one, Simon, was when they became a PLC. So that's mm. when Keegan left because um, the team and the club stopped becoming the priority and the money it generated for Hall and Shepard became uh, the primary goal. So that's where... Mm. That's kind of looking back now. We all know that's why Kevin uh, left the football club and 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 they be, became overtaken by other priorities. Um, and and really, Bobby Robson was brilliant, but he should have got more money um, to spend on to spend on players. He he really didn't get that much, and he had to go shopping in the bargain bin for the likes of Titus Bramble at, at times. Yeah. Um, he made two absolutely brilliant signings in Craig Bellamy and Lauren Robert. But beyond that, you know, your call courts and. And, he, and looking for bargains in South America didn't really it didn't really work out. So uh, comparing us now um, to where we've been in those takeovers that we that we mentioned, the club is kind of incomparable. Foot, football is though to to when I started going in the early seventies when you know it was everyone stood on the terraces and you know it was uh, it was, you know it was pretty uh, basic primitive kind of facilities to where it is now. It's just unrecognisable, but the whole game is. The takeovers, um, Hall, uh, uh, John Hall got a lot of things right, particularly about his appointments, Fletcher, Keegan, etc. Uh, and the absolute reverse is true of Ashley. Um, he stuck with the wrong people and got rid of the right people. Uh, I think we've all seen that. You know, Kevin Keegan, Chris Hutton, Rafa Benitez, he just couldn't kind of get wrap his head around who was good and who was bad, or perhaps he wasn't even interested. Um, but he got all... And But now I say, I think Ashworth could be one of the most important appointments the football club's ever made. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll come back to you, Chris, uh, just to kind of give us some balance on some of the things Mick has rightly said, that there's questions to be said now. We're stayed up, and I, I know you, you probably will say is that that was absolutely the only thing that mattered until we were mathematically safe that all eyes were on keeping the, the football team in the Premier League. Now that we've done that, there is a lot of stuff to sort and maybe there's more stuff to sort out behind the scenes than any of us realised. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Mike Ashley's left things even worse than you could have imagined and they're having to pick through all sorts of rubbish. But yes, the, 
The box office is a, is a big one. What are they going to do about ticketing? Fans are getting a bit frustrated now. What's happening with season tickets? How are people who want to re-engage with the club going to re-engage with the club? What's happening with the kits? Like you said, the Fun 88 thing's been a bit confusing. When are they, when are they going to announce um, what all the kits are going to look like? The, the scene, there was this Saudi Saudi coloured one and then that was a leak and then it wasn't and then we don't know what's going on with that. There's just... There's a few things there. The corporate structure is a big one, obviously. And what what is now the long term plan? There's there's questions to be answered. Are you confident from the noises you're hearing, Chris, that they are being answered? And there's just a lot of work to be done, and they're they're on it. Or and there's just so much of it to do. Or should we have any concerns? As Mick has rightly pointed out. Well, the, the, there is a heck of a lot to do, and I think some some of that is is in the pipeline of being sorted. But equally, I have questions about some of the things that have been raised. Uh, I mean, season tickets, it's a very, very difficult uh, situation that they have to try. That no, no matter what decision they come to, someone is not going to be happy or so a, a section of fans are not going to be happy. Mm. And it's almost an impossible decision as to what exactly they do with it. But equally, it's now the 8th of, the 8th of June and most of the clubs have at least given some indication. The Castle haven't even given any indication of how many season tickets they're going to be, what the prices are going to be, how it's all going to work, who's going to get what, how you can apply. And I'd, that I am surprised by, as, as difficult as a, and as a, much of a minefield as I think it is, uh, I think that I w- I'm surprised that we're not at least a little bit further forward of that now, and they'll probably announce them tonight or tomorrow morning now, knowing my luck in terms of we mentioned <laughs> yeah. this. But... Um, but but things like that, and, and I've already mentioned the CEO situation, the fact that they are looking longer term with, with some of the, the the other changes I like, and I also think that some of the structural changes on the footballing side, I think they needed Ashworth to be there to give them credibility and to to, to help create make those decisions in terms of what they're going to do. Although they did push on regardless with the training ground in conjunction with, with Eddie Howe as to what they could do in, in, in the short and medium term. And I suppose they may come back and argue that the same is true on the corporate side and that they need a CEO before they make some of the definitive decisions there. In terms of some of the sponsorships, I know that they've had a lot of discussions about those. And one thing I was told, that one issue that was that maybe pushed, and this could be used as an excuse, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but could have pushed the timeline back slightly, was that when the... There were some negotiations around the time of the sort of war in Ukraine broke out and suddenly a lot of companies stepped back a little bit and waiting to see where the lay of the land was going to be in terms of globally, the financial picture. I don't know. I haven't been able to get that verified beyond that as to how true that is and how close they ever were to anything, but that is one thing that's raised. Another is that for the likes of Funny at Eight, they are actually having to pay up part of, part of the contract to get out of there. Very good story by Mark Douglas, but to do it in the short term, they've had to pay a lot more. And from the conversations I've had, I don't think that they thought they could get the growth that they wanted in terms of to buy Fun 88 out for this season to then get the, the much significantly higher deal that they think they can get. I think that they believe that if they wait a little bit longer, that they will get more of a cost, more of a gain from that. Essentially, they'll be able to get a higher deal in the year's time if they're not fighting relegation at the time they're trying to make these deals. If instead they're hopefully comfortably mid-table, top eight, or whatever that they, they may hope to be next season. So that's some of the balance I can provide. But I agree with Mick. Some of these questions do need to to start being answered. The 
that they're, they're inherited a skeleton structure at Newcastle. They're trying to to fill that out, but they need to fill it if if they are going to progress at the rate that they want to, albeit organic growth. They still want it to be on quite a really a quick time scale. Then these questions need to start being answered, and, and these departments and these structures need to be in place to really help the club grow and move forward. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's that's a very well put, um, balanced view, Chris. Um, I think um, what's what's unique, and this is the, la- the last kind of thing I want to talk about, but I'm conscious of time, so we'll keep this fairly quick, is, um, is the whole ownership structure, PIF, Stavely, the Rubens, and their understanding of football, because Mike Ashley's biggest flaw is he didn't, he didn't have a fucking clue about football. He didn't know how to run a football club. Now, I'm encouraged by the likes of Dan Ashworth's name being brought to the club because they're trying to get proper football people. And it does it does reflect the Freddie Fletcher, uh, Keegan point you made earlier, Mick. But the, the only concerns I've had about the decisions always having to go back to Saudi Arabia and going back to, to people who probably don't have the slightest understanding of the Premier League of football of Newcastle United, is is, is that going to hamper us somewhere down the line now? I kind of, I'm just looking at um, where we are now, right? With Job one was done. They've kept us up. Do they know what needs to be done and how quickly it needs to be done? Because football can change very quickly. Um, football players will get will get itchy feet. The likes of Bruno Gamaris isn't here for a five-year plan to get into Europe. He, he's going to want to be knocking on the door of Europe at the end of next season. And any like-minded football players that we sign are going to be thinking the same. So if we don't, as you put it, Chris, um, travel at the rate we're kind of hoping to travel at, and I'm sure that's the, the rate the club want to travel at, where does that land us and what's their, what's their combat to that? I don't, I don't know if you've got that. This is a very complicated question I'm asking, but what, what, what do we think um, they, they've got in terms of their understanding of, of how to achieve that next goal? That I mean, that's a that's a it is a good good question and a difficult one. I don't know if I can provide an adequate answer to. One of the things that I'll be interested if and when we do get to, to be put in front of Dan Ashton and ask him is, in terms of what scope does he actually have? At the minute, the main decisions do have to go back to to PIF and as the, as the majority stakeholders, they 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 ratify them, and, and a large part of it that's what they've done so far. But how much flexibility does Dan Ashworth have before he has to go back to Saudi Arabia and do something? If he says this is fundamentally what this football club needs to move on to the next level, this is exactly what we need. Is he going to have the autonomy to be able to do that, or is there going to be a point where he's then got to go to them and then justify it? I mean, obviously every decision has to be justified, but what what are the power lines? That is unclear at the minute. Mm. There's a new structure that they're putting in. We don't know that yet. Um, but to really, if they are, if the direction of travel is to try and compete for the Premier League within five to ten years, and to, to compete with the likes of Man City and Liverpool, then it will take time. For the very reason that the infrastructure they have at the minute just is not in is not comparable to those clubs and to really make it sustainable they need that to be in place and the training ground is likely to take three to five years before they have the proper setup there because yeah. people are like why don't they just build it now but they've got to find the area they've got to decide exactly what they wanted again it's about getting it right exactly what what is it that we can build and what do we need there that is going to make this be a 20 to 25 year world-class facility that we can continue to update and improve going forward as well so decisions like that i think in terms of in terms of that, and I think that there is a realisation there, and I think that's part of the reason why PIF 
were willing to get involved to begin with because they saw that, that, that there is a long-term growth plan as well. It's not just about the short shot. We try and win the league. I think that they saw that as we grew over time. So I do think they understand that. But in terms of satisfying the likes of, of Bruno Gimresh or other players who they try to sign who would say that he, he came in. And that, was, that was the point to me where Amanda Stavely saying it was one thing, but for Newcastle's sort of marquee signing in January to come out at his first press conference and when he was asked, what is it the owner said to you is, is their vision for the club, to come out and say, they told me we're going to, we, we here to try and win the Champions League and to be a big world power is what I think he said. That to me was like, well, that is what they are actually selling the vision. So they are, they are telling the players who they're trying to sign, this is what we're trying to do. And to deliver that on the pitch is a very, is a very different thing altogether and, yeah. and if, if if in a year's time they are ninth in the Premier League have had no issues in terms of relegation I think a lot I think a lot of people would be quite happy with that but I, I agree with you I don't think Bruno Gimmer should be sitting there thinking he'd be thinking hang on a second I, I thought by now would be top seven maybe kicking on a little bit further and so that's where there is a slight disconnect at the moment I think because I do think other people at the club are more realistic about where they expect Newcastle to be next season but at least someone somewhere has sold a vision to the players of this is where this is where this is the direction of travel and we're getting there very very quickly and the two of them don't quite align at the moment and I don't know how they get back together right at this stage yeah um I'll have to admit to needing to pinch myself earlier this week because I was um, watching all the kind of transfer rumours and getting a bit worried about the fact that we haven't signed anybody. And that I'd remind myself, it's <laughs> it's the it was the third of June or whatever it was. You know, and like Newcastle don't even normally start looking for transfers until the end of August, so we, we probably do all need to slow down in terms of getting worried about how the summer's going. Um, but I, that, that, there is that kind of thought of if. We rode the crest of a wave massively and almost this summer couldn't have come at a worse time in terms of our form and how the football was going, albeit we needed a new season to start so we could start on a level playing field. But we've all got to kind of accept that it's it's not likely to continue in the way that it did. I mean, top three form with the current squad of players is, is, would be miraculous to continue. And I'm not d- disparaging anything. They've all improved. They've all been excellent. But they're playing so far above the level that we thought any of them could ever play at that something would have to give um, and transfer-wise, it doesn't sound like it's going to be as easy as we hoped to just go and hand-pick the players we need. So, so Mick, Sorry, is it, on, the, on. on the on the subject, I, mean, I think Chris re, re, raises a really good point about the how it all works um, structurally. And at the at the minute, it would seem that um, Murdad Gudusi, Amanda Stavely, uh, and uh, Jamie Rubin, to a, a lesser extent, are in the box seat, but. Um, the decisions going back to Saudi to be for money to be signed off, um, yes, that's always going to happen in a you know where eighty percent of the shares are owned by one party. But obviously, the chairman of PIF is also the chairman of Newcastle United, Yaza Al Romain, uh, whose name I've probably horribly mispronounced. Um, so he's the chair. So that the distance in that decision making shouldn't be great, and he's a guy who's involved in. Uh, various sports, particularly golf, etc. So he sh- he should have a, a grasp of all of that, and you know, and I don't think he's a tea boy. I think he will have certain amount of autonomy to make decisions. And obviously, they've uh, and I forget the guy's name who's just joined the board, who's a a Saudi. So uh, I, yeah, so I I do think that maybe the football club in Saudi Arabia are coming closer together. What I what I'm interested in is Murdad Gadusi and. 
Amanda Staveley's kind of, uh, not a short-term future, but a medium and longer-term future because uh, the value of the football club is going to massively increase on the back of the investment that the Saudis will put in. But Murdad and Amanda Staveley, they haven't got that kind of money, so they can't match that investment. So I'm kind of wondering how that's going to go. I have heard some kind of comments that uh, that they will reduce their shareholding to 5% in account, on account of that. So I'll not pretend that I know the detail of what, what that's all going to going to be, but I sometimes wonder whether or not uh, Amanda Staveley and Murdad Gadusi are kind of attempting to position themselves for that chief executive role, um, or whether or not they'll gradually fade out the picture, having done the great job of brokering the whole thing and bringing parties together for which we will be eternally grateful, I hope, um, going forward. But So there's a number of structural things around that. I see, I do see Saudi and Newcastle United becoming closer because of uh, Yazar al-Rumain, the new guy whose name I can't remember, um, uh, coming, to, coming together and being closer um, and whether or not that will dilute the role of Amanda Staley and uh, Staveley and Murdad Gadusi. I don't know. I'm speculating on that. Obviously, but it's going to be fascinating to watch how it how it develops, uh, and then we'll continue to have these questions about how that works: the management contract, the lack of the chief executive, the absence of a, a corporate team underneath. All all think that has to that has to work. On the football side, I think under Eddie Howe, the club can travel quite far, quite quickly. I think I've said this numerous times, so they can go from where they are now, which is perennial strugglers to perhaps getting in the top eight in maybe two or three with transfer windows and we're in kind of we're in the first full one of the new ownership and I wouldn't be surprised if they were in the you know eighth the ninth kind of position which would be a massive success I, I think the real challenge is to kind of make that jump from being seventh eighth to kind of third and fourth I think that's and then you know, Liverpool and Manchester City are formidable, aren't they? Man United aren't going to be rubbish forever. It's interesting to see what's going to happen at Chelsea with their new ownership, etc. So I think um, that's probably that 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 kind of harder jump is probably for maybe two or three years' time. But um, where we are now, I think we maybe should be looking at targeting the, you know, being a, being in the hunt for a Europa League place. And I sometimes wonder whether or not. We discuss this and we try and make it harder than it is. That West, that's where West Ham are. There, West Ham are in that spot, and they're in that spot on the back of having two or three really quality players and a and a decent manager. And I think we've got far more in our locker than West Ham. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely realistic. You're talking about catching up with Leicester and and West Ham, aren't you? You're not necessarily talking yeah. about jumping straight into the the Arsenal Tottenham area of the table. Yeah, uh, and maybe in terms of bringing those two tie lines together of of building the football t- football team, building a a football club, and the the football team itself kind of keeping in line with it, and any players you bring in like Bruno that want to get to the top of the game as quickly as possible, is it a case of yeah, that's the next step? We we put ourselves amongst that next pack of teams, and maybe get get ourselves deep into a cup run because that's something for players like Bruno to to keep them interested, some silverware to yeah. chase, and, and that's probably how you tie all that together. Um, Chris, anything more to say on that? Is that, is that a good way to, to round off the show there? I think that is a good way to end, to end the show because after the, the last couple of weeks of the, of the season, Eddie Howe was asked about sort of 
goals for next season. And then and he was he, he was sort of coy in it as he as about a lot of things. But for the first time in 14 years, I heard a Newcastle United manager say they were going to take the cup seriously next season. I believed him. And I do think <laughs> that that's what and Newcastle will have a go. And I think that if they don't go on at least a cup run in one of in one of the two cup competitions, that will be a failure next season because I mm. think that they will be prioritizing that. And I hope they do. And, I, and I'm pretty sure with the with the kind of new energy we have, we, we could go far. And again, with a bit of luck in terms of draws, it, it could happen. It really could. I believe it could happen. We can we can win a cup easily. Leicester did it last season, and we're nearly we've already nearly caught them. Gents, it's been an absolute pleasure. A very interesting discussion. Uh, very very many thanks to you, Chris, for for joining us tonight, and thanks as always to Mick for getting involved again. Um, this has been the True Faith Podcast. Thank you very much, gents. We'll see you again.